All my life, I never wanted to be anything else. From before I could read, uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And because I'm a generalist in several sciences and the arts, I come across a lot of really strange things. And you will find out about these in a little bit. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thanks for coming to the interval tonight. We're really glad to have you for Elizabeth Kirkland speaking for us tonight. One more time, a big round of applause for tonight's speaker. This is the painting forest floor that's back there that I did in 2007. It's all species that are new to Western science. I say Western science because there's a begonia here that's called begonia lazat. Lazat means delicious in Malay. So it wasn't new to the people there. It's new to the Linnaean system and new to Western science. Um, you know, that's a fairly complicated painting. It's not one you'd try as your first one ever. Uh, it's been said that I, I make paintings of the natural world through a 500-year viewfinder. I have studied the Dutch still life masters extensively, but how did I get to this point? That's kind of what I'm going to try to show you tonight. Um, I came here from there, 3404 Hawthorne Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. There were 54 kids on my block when I first moved there. Each house was on an acre lot, and the backyards all connected, so we were free. But we also had to learn responsibility. We had to all know when to call an adult and when not to. And there's, you know, there's a lot of pecking order in that. So we learned a lot and had to become very fluent in responsibility quickly. My father was a naturalist. My mother was a, an artist. And my great uncle had a 500-acre plantation on the James River where we were free to do anything we could get away with, including diving from the top of the silo into the grain, which is really crazy. Um, but it, it's where my love of the natural world began, was in that farm. I remember what I was wearing when I saw this picture on the left of one of Michelangelo's slaves. I could not read yet. It was one of my mother's art books. And if you, if you look at, think about the rock and not the sculpture, you think, that's just a rock. And I remember having that thought and thinking there's some, something, there's a transformation happening there to me that to me is really powerful, and I want to do that. That's what I want to do. The other image on the right is Galileo's first drawings when he looked through a telescope at the moon. His entire worldview, his mindset, his time would tell him to disbelieve his eyes, but he did believe his eyes. And it was very powerful for me, too, in defining how I wanted to try to make work, because your mind can tell you one thing, but your eyes tell you a different thing, and I wanted to respond to my eyes. I did a lot more of my growing up here at this place. This is where I went to work for two weeks and stayed for four and a half years at the offices of Coevolution Quarterly. Uh, even though I did a random set of jobs, everything from making lunch to um, debugging our early code when we went from spindle cards to a mainframe computer for our subscription list. But I got to be a community of the ideas of that place, and it had a profound impact on my life and on my thinking. At the same, at that time, I was working, I was living in South of Market, which was a real ghost town back then, and uh, working in the arts, I helped start open studios, and I was making work out of trash, basically, because I didn't have a whole lot of money. Also, I, I lived in San Francisco because I was afraid to move to New York when I was only 19, and so I thought, well, I'd make an idiot of myself in San Francisco first. So this is an example of the kind of work I was making. It was trying to marry two and three dimensions, making painted sculptures, sculpted paintings. Um, these were all little buildings I saw from a moving train, and they were mysterious to me, so I was trying to create some, recreate some of that feeling of mystery. That's a chicken coop with the first taxidermied bird I did. It's a rooster that somebody didn't want anymore. 
and then a small cinema that when two people sat inside it, a little pixelated film showed the cinema building itself. The other side of the room had a library that was filled with handmade books for one person. Um, that's Karen Finley, by the way, inside there, just as an aside. Uh, one of the books that I, we were friends at the time, uh, one of the books I made was made out of latex. And it was, um, had had intaglio drawings of body texture, so pubic hair, nipples, whatever. And it was a rubber book, it was made for rubbing which I gave to Stuart Brand when I left San Francisco for New York. Um, I believe it's at Stanford now. They're trying to fix it or recreate it or something. Um, so knowing Stuart, I got to meet John Brockman. And I moved to New York in 1980. The evening, I left the evening that Reagan was elected. And I thought, oh my God, I'm headed for Armageddon. It's the end of the world. But <laughs> little did we know back then. Um, and when I moved to, San to New York, there was a, somebody had painted a bullseye in the middle of one of the big intersections, like Canal and Broadway, and that was, that was a landing spot for Skylab. Remember when that was going to come crashing through? <laughs> and there was a, R.E.M. did a song that was a little later, but it was, you know, it's the end of the world and we know it, but I feel fine. That was my feeling when I got to New York, like it's all going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm here. Um, so I kept trying to marry two and three dimensions against the grain entirely with the art world, but this was another building in an exhibit that had, oh, musical instruments. I had the leaves on that table that had thousands of them. The floor was miked. Um, there was a book that you had to open up to get, you had to actually walk the book open like this to read it. Um, and this was a torture chamber, sort of. And all you could see was the classical vices and virtues made out of various things. Um, that was at Real Artways. But at the same time, and forgive me for the poor quality of this, but somebody just sent me this iPhone photo of a piece I made that I'd completely forgotten about. My first husband had a, his family had a house up at Moosehead Lake in Maine. So I would go from the, what my father called the bowels of New York, up to this incredible natural place. So the balance was really helpful. Um, that's a loon carved out of wood, which was a nod to wood sculptures and all, you know, that whole bird carving thing, and some three-dimensional water. Um, all through the 80s, I made these sculpted paintings and sculpted, uh, painted sculptures. These were, this was a set of paintings that were hung from the ceiling, so the front and the back uh, were two sides of one issue. So this was Feast and Famine, I had Mind and Body, Love and Peace, I mean, a war and peace and love and hate. Um, so they're, you know, they really are built out from the canvas. Uh, the, it was part of an exhibit at New Langton Arts. Rennie Pritikin was, has always been really good to me. Um, and the whole exhibit was about duality and the faults of thinking dualistically. Um, I also made a bunch of, Malcolm Forbes bought one uh, Russian Easter egg so that he would have the largest collection. So I built a whole bunch of them so he wouldn't. But they were, of course, made out of garbage, you know. Um, this was sort of the last group of things I made in New York. This was a cabinet that was supposed to prevent, all the objects were made with the intent, this is going to prevent nuclear Armageddon. I was really interested in anthropology. I liked reading about how native cultures, local cultures, imbue objects with power and how they come to have power. So, you know, it's working. We haven't had one yet. Um, you know, it, the canopic jars that are back there, a few other objects are in there. They were all built. I was trying to, like, really be intense and focus really hard. Like, this is going to help make something not happen. Um, also, my dining room table chairs, for those of you who've been to our house, were part of this exhibit. But it never went anywhere. Um, I couldn't find anybody in New York who wanted to show my work, so I said, I'm not making work. I made a public announcement of not making artwork ever again. So some friends quickly made me try to help them finish their thesis films at NYU. So I art directed films for a few years, um, including for the Coppolas. I helped do the early, the kids, the next generation of Coppolas, I helped them make their first movies. Um, but it, and it brought me back to San Francisco, which was great, from New York, in 89. I hadn't actually really quit. I was still making this series of about 20 Persian miniatures that illustrated a short story 
On the back actually was a short story and they were illustrations. They were designed to work as a kind of a tarot deck in a weird way. Um, one of the things that blew me away about working in the film industry is the amount of waste there is. I mean, we'd go through 10 pallets of Luan, 500 gallons of paint, for what? You know, for a silly, silly movie that had no... There are some great films, I believe in film, but the waste is really astonishing. So it was one of the things that made me want to stop making sculpture and start to make something that had a much smaller environmental footprint. You can take these little bits of rare earth pigments and, and tr make this incredibly transformative thing happen. And I was really interested. They also, they're much easier to store, and you don't have to haul crap all the time. Um, and about this time, I saw um, a great still life exhibit by the Dutch masters of the period, late 1600s. And I was blown away that these things looked as fresh now as they did then. And I was, got really interested in that idea. This was a little side piece I had going on, you know, 20 or some paintings I've never shown anybody. Um, they were all endangered plants and animals, and I had a, a medhi pattern or a handprint um, so, to me, they were represented sort of the hand of man, which took away their chance of surviving, and the hand of man that was also trying to keep it to, to survive, allow it to survive. Um, and that sort of led in directly into this whole series I did in about the mid-90s, I guess, uh, that was called Nature in the Margins. So it was my local environment where something was surviving in this little pocket that was undisturbed. Um, you know, it was just a Golden Gate Transit bus going by, but, you know, things just will survive if they have enough room. And it also gave me this incredible opportunity to go through lots and lots of uh, trying out of materials, of mediums, of pigments. And that's how I find about mummy brown. So people used to actually grind up mummy brains to make a color that's roughly that color, maybe a little more brown in my monitor, it's a little more brown. Um, it wasn't a very good pigment. It got very expensive, so people started grinding up any old mummy, a cat or bones or whatever. And uh, it, it was also called caput mortem, which means dead head. Weird. We now have much better colors that are much more permanent. But, you know, Indian yellow was made out of cow dung, that marigold petals were their only food. Cochineal is the squished up scale bugs that grow in cactus, and we still use that as a number one red dye in lipsticks and whatnot. And there's lots of those. So what I was interested in was the difference between a fugitive color that will not last and a pigment that is pure enough and stable enough that will last for an unknown amount of time. So I was at some of, at least one of those early Long Now meetings trying to build models as Ideas were flowing around about how a library might look. And so I was already thinking in kind of a parallel track about permanence, about how to make something that might be worth, A, that might last, and B, some sort of statement that might be worth lasting, having last. And, and about um, 98, I got a mailer from the Sierra Club. It was the 100 most endangered animals in the United States. And this sort of aha moment, you know, that you have, I said, like, I'm going to make a Dutch still life painting, which, you know, if I'd heard myself, I would have thought, wait a minute, are you crazy? But I just decided to try it. And this was the result. Um, at the time, I didn't have any real credentials in science. Um, I went to five universities, I think. Um, and these were the, the this was the list of the endangered things that I could get access to. So it's, it's a very odd collection of things. Um, Fortunately, I've, uh, I now have enough credential that I can go to almost any museum and use their collection, which is fantastic. I always have mistakes, like Navajo rugs. Most of the time they're not on purpose, but sometimes they are. Um, and this was used by the All Species Project, another time that I collaborated with Stuart and Ryan and Long Now, precursor to Long Now. Uh, that's the San Francisco Garter there in the lower left. Um, I did most of this work in public libraries and Cal Academy Library. 
Fortunately, I met John McCosker around this time, and he introduced me to a bunch of scientists. I think he'd just given up and said I was going to keep asking questions, so they might as well let me in. Um, <laughs> it probably saved him time. Each of the paintings that I started in this Taxa series grew out of the first one, I mean, out of the previous one. So one of the things that causes endangerment is something else moving in and just doing it better and out-competing the previous marker in that niche. So these are all, quote-unquote, invasive species in the United States. Oh, there's a few trust territories thrown in for the hell of it, but... Um, this was really fun because instead of having to work from pictures and books, I could actually just go out and chop the stuff down and paint from life, so that was really fun. Uh, I've never gotten to do it again. Uh, the composition here is sort of a figure eight. Uh, the compositions are built very carefully to keep, make sure that your eye is always drawn from one thing to the next, and you don't even realize it when I do it right. I wish I could remember. Uh, uh, that one's close to 100. Um, one of the reasons that I don't like saying invasive is because there's a cowbird egg right here. The speckled egg is a cowbird egg. They called them cowbirds because they followed buffalo herds originally. So dropping an egg in a nest made sense because they were always on the move. But once the herd stopped going, the, they followed them because they would stir up, the cows would, the bison would stir up bugs, birds, you know, you get it. But once the bison weren't doing that anymore, the cowbirds just started laying eggs all over the place, and it's caused a lot of trouble for warblers and other things that have similar egg size. Um, this was, actually I have two things that were sort of in here about DNA. One is there's a square yard of fescue underneath everything. That's supposed to be a square yard of grass. Almost all seed grass is some fescue. There's very, maybe two, three at the most species that are ever sold as grass seed. Lawn products are one of the main reasons that there are few lightning bugs left anywhere in the country. Um, and also, uh, the strawberries and corn were sort of a... I was already thinking about genetic modification of food and monocultures where we don't have lots of different species. We only have one or two. Sorry, I'm speaking too much. The species are always life-size, unless I make a mistake. Uh, Largemouth bass have been introduced all over the world by fishermen, in every fresh water in the country, for sure, by fishermen. Um, so, in 19... What was it? Oh, yeah, about the edge, 1999-2000, my husband and I moved to London. So I got to work on interna in international museums, and so I chose an international theme. One of the other things that drives endangerment is trade, black market trade in animal products and animals. Uh, second only to, to guns, by some estimates, that it's a real big money generator. And the more endangered something gets, the more valuable it is, which drives the desire to get it and sell it on the market. Uh, it was great fun to be able to work at Q and work with Traffic International. I was kind of a nobody, but I just sort of wiggled my way in like a brash American because I really wanted to get the research done. Um, one of the things that I, one of the reasons that I built this painting about black market trade is that I also wanted to talk about gray market trade, something we don't talk about as much. Um, it's an ungoverned trade. So, you know, Matsutakis can be found in the North Pacific Northwest. An individual Matsutake sells now for about $75 in Tokyo. That's a big market driver. Um, and this thing on the right, uh, right is um, American ginseng. It's not governed. Uh, it is in, mostly in the Appalachians, the Great Smokies in the Appalachians. Nothing wrong with it. It's a cash crop for poor Appalachian people. But it also happens to grow in an area that has the highest endemism of salamanders in the world. And we don't know whether it has an impact. Hopefully somebody's written about it since I did the painting that long ago. Um, kind of growing out of this whole thing, I started working toward um, things that had gone extinct. So I began, it took me about, I did about four years of research on extinction because I had to kind of find the pieces and follow the stories bit by bit. What kept happening is I would say, well, this went to the brink and then was found, or it went to the brink and somebody carefully brought it back. The uh, Mauritius kestrel up there at the top um, was saved by one man 
over the course of two years, the whole species. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my track. Each painting begins as a database, by the way, not as a drawing. Um, and I was already working on building this Gone database when this sort of said, well, this is a great one, you know, these things have come back. So I've read about this magnolia in The Secret Life of Plants by Richard Attenborough and BBC, and it was about a magnolia that was found in Japan in a 2,000-year-old jar of rice. Some seeds were there, they planted them. Lo and behold, it's a new species. And I thought, well, how perfect. I'll use that as kind of my coat hanger, you know, how I arranged the painting. And I'll, I'll find out about it later. So I just was busy working on the painting and emailing people and all the magnolia people I spoke to said, no their seeds are notoriously short-lived. I finally ended up writing BBC, Attenborough, the, Jap the University of the Japanese researchers, couldn't find the researchers, so I wrote Gillian Prance, who used to be the secretary of Q, and his response was, Izzy, I can't help you with this one. I think it's a hoax. The whole thing was a hoax. But I'd already done so much of the work. <laughs> Um, that I decided to leave it in there as to represent our desire for nature to be resilient. Uh, I've taken thousands of photos, obviously. Uh, this just happened to be one of my favorite ones. It was one, a songbird Audubon named and really liked, uh, Vermivora bachmani, and that's actually a painting of my favorite photograph. So, finally, we get to gone. So these things are extinct everywhere at the full species level, with one extinction, because I always, I mean, one exception, because I always have one. Um, it, one of the earliest extinctions we know of is the blue buck. It's, I couldn't fit it in, obviously, so I just used the horns. I uh, took photos of them in Paris. They went extinct when guns came into Africa. As soon as there were rifles, the blue buck, blue buck went. It was heavy, meaty, slow, its leather was really strong, and it was gone. Um, this is our Revive and Restore banner, it's from this painting. Um, there's one pheasant feather here, it lives at the British Museum, it's been DNA tested, it's different from our existing fe Argus pheasant, and that feather is all that's left, that one feather. It was, a, it was called the double-banded Argus pheasant. This is a little wren that was flightless that lived on Stephen Island off the north coast of, of uh, New Zealand. Anyway, a cat, between the time it was sent off to be identified and the time the news came back, yes, this is a new species to Western science, the person who sent its cat ate every bloody one of them. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, but this is what I do. I go and I look at the original thing because there are textures you can't see in a photograph. There are things like, it looks gray because its skin is gray, not because the under feathers are gray. There are things you can't figure out like that without seeing it with your own eyes. Uh, this is some typical, happens to be the passenger pigeon, which I thought was appropriate, typical field drawings for me, making color notes, texture notes, details that you can't see unless you have a really close-up photo. Um, I went to Papua New Guinea and have a bunch of these drawn from a bird expedition I was on. So, when I start, okay, I go from a database and the original description to a rough drawing that's life-size. So, I know if this is a black and white bird, it's going to draw a lot of attention in the, in the painting, so I'm going to have to be careful where I place it. So, that might be my first one, but I actually want it turned around the other way, or I want it going like this, or like that. And so sometimes I have 30 to 40 drawings of the same animal. And I do them on trace because if I want to change the position of the head, I just plop in a new head and I don't lose all that rest of that drawing time. So then I put each one of those together. I have to have an idea first of how I'm going to arrange them. I start with like the four or five big things so they'll be balanced. I need a piece of blue tape at the top. Um, and then I just build this sort of schematic. And instead of like drawing the whole thing over every time, I'll just do one little part and retrace it. So then I will take, when I have a finished drawing, I, thank you, Ryan. When I have a finished drawing that's the full scale that I'm happy with, I just draw it all over again with a piece of carbon paper underneath it and transfer it to the canvas. 
Um, that's kind of a joke. It's, it's kind of like carbon paper. Um, and then my husband said, yeah, and then it's just paint by number after that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I liked it. It made me laugh. I like jokes. Um, so this is just details from, from Gone, the passenger pigeon, Carolina parakeet, uh, laughing owl went extinct because it had no fear of humans and no other predators, and they just got trashed. Um, you know, they, each one has an incredible story about why and how it went extinct. Uh, this was an ostrich egg that was carried around for 50 years by some Colonel Doughty, some Colonel Lawrence, and Richard Meinertshagen, who's a, I'd love to tell you that story, but I don't have time. Um, but the Colonel Lawrence was Lawrence of Arabia. How did he carry an empty ostrich, around, ostrich egg around for 40 years without breaking it? Uh, so, and they were in the Middle East. Ostriches all over the Middle East. Um, I included jars because wet collections in natural history museums, sometimes the, what they're put in maintains the DNA better than just a dry specimen. And at the top right is a, a gastric brooding frog. That's one of the species that's been under consideration, correct? Um, so that's, this is ivory-billed woodpeckers. I love them. They're really so cool. Um, that tail feather is just a, like a piece of wood that they actually rock back and use it. There's a little V at the tip because they wear off the rest of what the tail feather used to look like. Uh, just incredible birds. Their bill is actually a chisel. Um, I just learned that woodpeckers actually do a lot of their noise-making as territory display, not digging and feeding. Um, anyway, I would love to see them brought back. They're my, my pet species. Uh, they actually also have a tendon that goes from the edge of the jaw, wraps around the back of the skull, and anchors up here. It is a shock absorber for the brain, and there's a parallel one in some woodpeckers that's for tongue extension. Um, so that was like seven years spent on just bad news, bad news. It's all so grim. I was really depressed. But at the same time, when I was doing research on all those, I would be talking to a bird guy or a herp guy or whatever, and he'd say, yeah, that's all really cool, but let me show you what I just found. And it's like they would turn into a 12-year-old kid. All that wonder would be alive again. So I thought, well, that's kind of what I'm going to do next. I'm going to do things that have just been found. So that's how Nova was born. Um, originally, I was going to do a perfect chord, seven paintings, but there was so much wonderful new stuff that I just got totally carried away. Uh, so here we are, back at forest floor. Um, I wanted, I call them outdoor still lives, because it's still a shallow depth, but... Uh, and I lost myself, sorry. Oh, I wanted this painting in particular when there's so much detail, you kind of just want to go like up and closer and closer. And I wanted it to fill your whole frame of reference so that when you were in close, you were really surrounded by that world. Um, again, with all these paintings, working out the uh, composition is really tricky. This one also has a nice Easter egg that nobody but me and whoever owns it next will know. These are glow-in-the-dark mushrooms uh, in real life and in the painting. Um, what I didn't tell you about this is work is that I thought, oh, this is great. These are new species. They're going to be so easy to research. And in the end, I had to email almost every single describing scientist to get their photos. Um, this was sort of the second level in my imaginary rainforest, the understory, filtered light all that kind of stuff. I tracked journals and digests on the web for probably five years to find, trying to learn about all these new discoveries. Um, and I built this one on a plant that's a night-blooming gentian called Macrocarpia apparata. Um, ap they kind of loomed up out of the mist, so they, like Harry Potter's, apparating. Um, and I met the scientists who did it, who found it in Ecuador, and borrowed lectotypes from them and thought, oh, this is great. Oh. And I would never have known the texture of the flowers if I hadn't borrowed it. And I, I, got, I thought he was in Ohio, and he ended up being in Switzerland, and it cost me like $400 to get them COD. But that's the way it goes. Um, it was a big email project. Uh, this little uh, dark monkey at the top, which I can't, I'm sorry, I can't dredge up the name at the moment. 
that baby was actually the size of a thumb, and it was bought, brought to Mark Van Roosmalen in a tuna can um, and ended up being a new species. I had such great emails with him. He invited me to the Amazon, but between the time he invited me and I got around to going, he was arrested for biopiracy, which wasn't true, but he's now not in the Amazon anymore. Um, this is a... This is one of my favorite paintings, Gone and Canopy are really my two favorites. So this is kind of the crown of the tree, uh, the third story up, if in, but it's all imaginary. These things are from all over the world. They are at life size, but they are uh, totally in an imaginary place. Most of them are tropical, because that's where the greatest diversity is, but, but not exclusively. This trip, trip, uh, it was a trip. These. Uh, this painting, in, in part, was a tribute to someone who helped me identify a lot of small, of the micro-orchids that just cover everything when you're in a really nice, dense rainforest. Um, Dr. Carl Luer, he's done 13 volumes in his lifetime, and probably f another since I checked, all on pleurothalid orchids, most of which are epiphytic and live in the upper reaches of trees. Uh, I just wanted to honor that. It's such a cool thing to do with your life. Um, one of the reasons I had to email so much is that a lot of birders have stopped collecting at all. In the old days, they would just go shoot a whole suite of them and send them all over the place. They'd shoot like 100 birds and send them to museums everywhere. Well, Dutch birders won't kill anything anymore. They let everything go. They take enough samples and enough photographs and measurements that they just say, that's all we need. There's no reason to kill them and keep them in dead drawers somewhere. They do take DNA samples, of course. Um, about this time, I'd been with a uh, wonderful gallerist in New York, Hudson at Feature, and Hudson died um, two days before joining me at a big uh, survey exhibit I had. So it was really tragic for me, but I made this, but this makes me happy. So we had a memorial show for him. All the artists in the gallery made things, and this one was called, oh, uh, this one was called We Were So Lucky. We were lucky to have him as a friend and lucky to work with him. And um, I put it in because I've made hundreds of these sort of one-off pieces that I rarely show in my talks. And often I'll go to somebody's house and I'll say, what, where'd, you, where'd you get that? That looks really cool. And they say, well, you made it about 30 years ago. Um, after working on this, you know, 10, is it 10 paintings? Over the course of about 14 years, I promised myself I was going to deal with ocean issues. And it's really hard. It took me six months to come up with an approach to even thinking about it. Like, how do you, I don't want to do Wyland, you know. How, do, how can I be dispassionate about these creatures? Because I, I don't want to make nature art that's, you know, lions in the sunset and all that kind of stuff. I'm doing it for a different reason. I want it to last. And I also build it so that I can let projects like this use the images to have projects like this happen. This is a record that was made by, and now I can't, I don't have my glasses on, so I can't even see who it was done by, apologies. But it's recordings of animals that are on the rise and animals that are on the descent. So I like using these images for, for political purposes. Um, so, okay, so back to oceans. They're huge. How am I ever going to parse it? You know, all the other things I've had, like a logical pathway to get to the subject matter. And oceans, are, they're so big and overwhelming. And all the creatures have all these body parts, and I don't know what they're for. Um, so I decided that the rubric would be, they need to be everywhere. They need to be plentiful. They need to be in all the oceans and they need to be relatively unknown by the general populace. And that's a good thing, I can contribute that. So nudibranchs was the first one I decided to do. Um, it, I spent about, I don't know, at least a year learning about them before I even started painting. Every nudibranch is a hermaphrodite. They have both sets of equipment. This is two sort of standard nudibranchs mating. They will both go off and lay eggs. Uh, so they have both, both sets. Um, and they can, they practice protandry, so they don't have to be the same age bracket. They can be, there can be a great big one and a small one of the same species. And that's because they have a really hard time finding each other. 
um, another sidetrack to that is that nudibranch penises are really weird. <laughs> There's lots of barbs and little cups and things, and every species is entirely different, and they're all kind of designed so that, okay, we're together. We're not going to let the tide blow us apart. Um, and that's when I found out about penile fencing. So these are actually head shield slugs. They're still in the osteobranch group, very similar group. Um, H is the head. So we'll talk about the lower animal because the other one's been turned into a female. Um, the, the penis goes in like they do with all of them. They go side to side. But where they fence is with this second, it's sort of like a double a Y-shaped thing. The one on the right, the S thing, is a, like a hypodermic needle. And that's the part they fence with. They're each trying to stab the other guy in the foot. And the first guy who stabs, they inject a hormone which makes the person who got injected first turn into a female. Um, I mean, the world is so much stranger than I even give it credit for, and I see a lot of weird stuff. Um, this was one of the little paintings I did that was just so that I could familiarize myself with nudibranchs, and it's all self-defense. Some of them bury in the sand, some slough off parts if they get bitten, uh, this Plocamiferous group can actually flash a little bulb of luminous a little bit and scare a predator. Uh, the group on the, in the middle, the white one, uh, has glass spicules all over it. So any fish that bites it will just get a mouthful of stickers. The Chromodorid group has little pores all around the mantle edge. or they, they, It's like they're sort of a normal slug with a skirt over it. And all around the edge of the skirt, they have acid glands that can just send off this noxious stuff. But the coolest ones are these ones with the pointy serrata. They mostly um, eat other things that have stinging cells, so sponges, uh, anemones, things like that. And they don't digest them, they actually store the nematocysts in the tips of their own serrata. So they'll store them out here and redeploy them. But it only lasts for five days, so they have to keep eating them. But I just think, that how do they know not to digest this nematocyst? It's particularly since the digestive tract is in the serrata. I don't know, the world's really... They are all hermaphrodites, every one of them. Um, so on this picture, you can see, so I put them in some different positions. You almost wouldn't even know they're the same group of animals. So this is how they can look. So. Uh, isn't that a spectacular? <laughs> what a luscious animal. You know, it's probably about this big. Um, so the rhinophores are these middle two pointy bits. Rhino means nose. They smell their world chemically. That's how they understand the world. Um, this is a chromodorid with the skirt and mantle. And nudie brank actually means naked gill. So these feathery parts on the group that has the mantle um, or actually breathing apparatus. And as I was working on them over the course of years, I kept calling it, that's the butt lettuce. You know, it's butt lettuce. <laughs> um, but the mouth of this one is here, and the mouth of that one is kind of below those little tentacles. Uh, and they can climb a bridge of slime. They make slime just like garden slugs. So if, they, if there's a slime trail that goes from this rock to that plant that some other went on, other nudibranch went on or laid down, they can cross it too. Um, they can swim on the underside of the water. They can swim like an eel, some of them. They're really strange creatures. Um, they can, if they're, some of them, with, particularly with this kind of serrata, if they're upset, they can stick them all up and bristle them like a pine, uh, porcupine. So, and also some of them are just blood out, flat out cannib uh, they're cannibals. And I apologize, I took these off of uh, Sea Slug Forum. I didn't get very good photos. But um, this big blue thing, oh yeah, this is really good. But unfortunately, Bill Rudman's retired, so it, I can't get really good info off of it anymore. Um, uh, so this big blue thing is its mouth. It sort of everts this mouth and can bring in food that way. Um, and the way they pull it in are with these things. It's called a radula. It's a little plate of teeth-like things that help them get a grip on slimy nudibranchs. 
And it's how nudibranchs have always been diagnosed, uh, speciated. This little radula, depending on, you know, this big to probably like that, is excised out and analyzed carefully with uh, big, you know, scanning electron uh, microscopes. And that dentition or radula is how they've always been speciated before. DNA is being used more and more, but it's still in its infancy. Um, plus, nudibranchs look like, basically like dried rubber cement once they're in uh, formaldehyde. So you kind of have to, I had to work from photographs, which wasn't bad. Um, these are two typical uh, nudibranchs. They, I keep saying, why are they these colors? You know, they can't even see. They really can't. Uh, well, let's see, I know where it is. Excuse me for... Okay, I know it's a bad slide, but you see there's a pink, I mean a yellow dot and the sort of rhinophore, the ear-like thing, and behind that yellow part, this sort of faint blue circle. That is their only light-sensing organ, and it can basically tell them if something is over them or not. So they're these crazy colors. Why? And you know, you go 15 feet down, there's, you can't see color anyway. Um, so I started looking at that, and here's a, a, a very recently published article, if you'd like to read it, about color in nudibranchs. Um, but one of the reasons is that they eat something that they can use, then redeploy the pigment. So this nudibranch eats his orangey, pinky sponge, and his eggs are that color, and he is that color, because he's actually redeployed the pigment. Um, others, this would be a completely clear nudibranch, except that he has a resident algae, and they both share the food from the production, uh, you know, photosynthesis of the algae called zooxanthellae, which is a fun word to say. Um, this recent article says they think it is really complex aposematic, you know, uh, systems of avoidance, but there are lots and lots of mimicries. There are tunicates that mimicate them, mimic, mimic them, and there are uh, flatworms that mimic nudibranchs, so there's thousands of these mimicries. So it's hard to tease out why they're the color they are. Um, so this is 206 of about 3,000 nudibranchs we know of. There's probably another 3,000. Uh, I painted them as large as they might ever grow, just so I had a little more room to play with them. Um, and this is, it looks like a black ground over there when you look at it, but actually it's, it's, um, it's an optical black. It's actually a very, very dark green because the camera looks at that differently. Uh, that's the kind of thing I've learned over a really long time. <laughs> took a long time to figure that out. The top row took me about a month to paint, and I used a straight pen to put most of it on. Um, next, what am I going to do next? Well, I want to work on shrimps, and I don't mean pink and on a plate. They are really diverse, and it would be fun. I've even found one that has plaid, two different color eyeballs that are plaid. I swear to God, they look plaid in the photos. Um, but I also just got back from two weeks in Suriname, where I've been asked to do a piece for a new U.S. embassy there on the flora and fauna of Suriname. So this crimson-headed uh, mannequin will definitely be in the picture because he's really cute. Um, and then my new boyfriend, Archie, <laughs> I'm in love with. Um, but I want to do his portrait full by himself because he's just such a glorious animal. Um, his tongue is probably about this long. He's a giant anteater, um, and they are lethal. Don't they look benign? And their mouth is really three-quarters of an inch wide, um, and they have no teeth. That's a formidable amount of ants to get to that size. So how do they hurt you? They hurt people because they have about a four-inch, three-inch, and two-inch dagger on this part for cracking open termite nests that are like cement. And when they stand up, they're about this tall. And if you piss them off, they'll take your head off. And it actually happened to someone who was killing one to eat it and shot badly. Boom. Um, but this guy was at a rescue center for anteaters and sloths. Um, I just can't wait to go back to Suriname, and I hope I get to go with the painting. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
That was, that was wonderful. Um, so we're going to get some questions. So think of your questions. I'm going to get a couple to, to start off. And of course, we'll have plenty of time to chat afterwards. Um, one thing um, that I'm not sure you touched on was uh, tell us more about uh, your, uh, the way you um, prepare these paintings to last for uh, the long term um, themselves. Okay. Right? So this is a survival of of these species through your art. Tell us a little right. bit more about how well, your techniques for that. Well, originally I, I painted on aged wooden panels with uh, gesso that I made from di uh, titanium dioxide and rabbit skin glue and ground marble dust. Uh, they're very labor intensive and you just, you just sit there for about a week going like this and eventually it gets smooth, but you don't want to do that on something that's really big. So I thought, I can't keep doing this. It too, takes too much time. So I started looking into conservation chip on paintings and one of the things that turned up was uh, I read about a material that's actually a very fine French polyester that if they go to reback uh, an, an old 300 year old painting, this is the material they use. So I thought, there's got to be a reason they're using it. So I looked into the chemistry of it, and because it is polyester, and because I now use an alkyd medium with only AAA rated, well, sometimes AA, but there's still they're materials that are going to not change over the long course of time, the polymer chains that are built around the molecules are the same kinds of polymer chains that the fabric is made of. So... There are two things that cause deterioration in oil paintings. One is that st they start stretching in the middle. So they stretch the middle really tight, and then they work out to the edges, and you'll see cracks that go in a circle. So there's different tension on the fabric. The other thing is that anything that's a natural fiber wicks um, moisture over time. So it goes in, out, in, out, in, out, and it makes cracks in that paint film that wants to stick together because they, they were trying to make it last. But... So I paint on polyester with polyester, and I actually got to sit next to the chief conservator at the National Gallery in London once, and I said, okay, you know, everybody else was talking. I was going, like, no, 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 I, have to, I need your attention. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, we were the only ones interested in chemistry. So I ran my methods by him, and he said, you have as good a shot as anybody else does. So I thought, well, what the hell, you know. And what, what do you anticipate, uh, how long do you anticipate they'll be able to last with those techniques? Well, they're much more likely to get destroyed with flood, fire, neglect. Um, one of the reasons I, I would never have had the nerve to get my paintings up into the price range they are, but it is a protection mechanism. Mm -hmm. If you value something, it has a like, greater likelihood of surviving. Got it. Um, do we have any questions? If you've got a question, we've got one right here. We've got a microphone for you. Just a, a quick question on the Nudelbrandt painting. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, the big ones down below at the, at the front, are those life-size? And the little ones all the way back are also life-size? Yes, they so are. So that's not perspective we're seeing. It's not perspective. That is scale. It's scale. Um, and they're, they go much smaller than four millimeters, but I just decided I didn't want to use a microscope to paint with. You know, it's, like, it's small enough. Say, say a little bit more about that, because you're, you're painting everything at its real scale, right? Has yes. that gotten absolutely ridiculous in some situations? I mean, or yes. how do you handle that, a large species? Well, I usually will do something like use the scat or some prints Got it. or a bone. Uh, I use the skull of a, a what is the Tasmanian tiger thylacine? Thank you. Um, I uh, actually wrote someone who had photographs of legitimate one, you know, actual specimens. So I included it as the skull. Um, I got really interested in seed longevity when I was working on uh, back because it's a resurrection idea. And I think, you know, Xander went to Svalbard later. I knew right. about Svalbard before he went, but um, I, I did find, you know, examples of things that have been dormant for on the order of 8,000 years. So there are seeds that can last a really long time in the tundra, mostly permafrost. Uh, and, and just a quick note, because I did mention it earlier, uh, we're really happy that we've got a lot of Long Now members that are listening to our live stream tonight. So they're joining us uh, from afar. Long Now members can listen in. 
uh, to our talks. Thanks to uh, Edward Bertinsky, a former speaker of ours, who's given us a grant to support that for this year. So uh, we may have, uh, we'll see if we get any questions. If you're on the live stream, type them into the chat box and you'll be able to ask your questions as well. Uh, do we have another question from the room? We've got, I saw this, oh, we've got one right here and then you'll be next. Just a little bit back to the sea slugs. Did you have the chance in your research to actually interact with any of them? To oh, yes. Get to know them a bit? Yes. Uh, I, I originally got interested in them because I, my studio is a little houseboat that I built. Uh, and everybody says, don't you, you know, how do you move? But my easel and my chair and me all move the same way, so it's not a problem. But um, I have caught eight different species in the bay right where I live. And that's how I first got interested in them because I was... I thought, I'm going to make a study of the mud because it always looks different. And so one day I was looking at the mud and I was going, like, there's all these little teeny seaweeds. And they weren't seaweeds. They were slugs laying eggs. And when I looked them up, they looked like this white one, this almost clear one. They, had, they came in the bay, got the algae, turned green, laid eggs, left, and went back to being clear. So I, I just thought, well, that's really interesting. So that's how I got to Nudibranchs in the first place. When you, uh, when you ask your question, just hold it up really close. You need to do that with these mics. Thank you. There you go. What's, what's your question? This Thank is you. a very fuzzy question. Okay. Um, but I like I'm fuzzy. Inter <laughs> I'm interested in um, the kind of heightened reality of yes. those. I mean, obviously, they're not, as you point out, the species came from all over the world in right. most of them. Right. But in the way of the Dutch masters that you described, that's a heightened sort yes, of reality, too. It is. Um, so many questions. I mean, do you think what a painter can do is much more sophisticated than what a photograph can do in that way? Oh, they're and both interpretations, really. Working on something like this, does real life look bland to you afterwards? <laughs> no, because, you know, I like this part. You know, I, I just was in a, a pretty intense, fairly pristine jungle for four days. And yeah, a lot of it, there's nothing there, but it all moves through if you just wait. I mean, so yes, my scenes are incredibly imaginary. And, you know, I think nature movies make it seem like, you know, oh, here comes this and here comes that. And there's a lot of really boring downtime in between. But that's when you look at spiders and, you know, the kind of sand that's there. And, you know, there's always something to look at that's interesting. But, um, no, these are completely sort of psychedelic, honestly. <laughs> but but you, you do have that advantage that you could be really selective of what you're showing. Yes. And you can... And whereas a photographer's got to wait for some behavioral thing that Absolutely. may be so rare to happen in front of them, um, you, you can portray it. I mean, I meant, I was, didn't have time, but I was going to say, I always feel guilty when I paint the brighter, prettier bird that's usually male, you know, because of the doll, the hens are often kind of drab. But, you know, what I'm trying to do is get people excited and engaged. And if that's, if, if I have to do it this way, this isn't such a bad price to pay. Um, I, I make things at life size and as accurate as I can because I play a game with myself. I would like the person who described the species the first time to walk up and say, oh, that's my, you know, Bafalusa, whatever it is. I mean, I'd like the scientists themselves to be able to recognize it. Uh, and it's a game. It's a, just a mental game, but also it keeps me sharp. <laughs> so what's actually written on that ostrich egg? Oh, it, I can tell you exactly. It says, uh, found at near Beseda, and it gives the longitude and latitude and the date uh, by Colonel, Colonel Doughty, comma, given to Colonel Lawrence in 1846. I could go back and check. Um, who later gave it to Richard Meinertshagen. Do you know who he was? He's, do we have time to tell a crazy story? Okay. All right. Um, this owl was thought to be extinct, and Pamela Rasmussen, who works in at the Smithsonian, was putting together a new book on uh, the birds of Pakistan and India, 
And she thought, you know, that shouldn't be right. That should not be right. That bird should be somewhere else. So she looked at the, this one, Athene Bluidae. She got the specimens that were at the British Museum and got the FBI involved to analyze the ink, what was used to stuff them. And it turns out that Richard Meinertshagen, who was a flamboyant World War I uh, spy, actually wanted to have the biggest bird collection in Britain private bird collection in Britain. And he went into the British Museum and stole specimens to complete his collection. And he rewrote the collection data, restuffed it, and it turned out from some other correspondence that she found that he wasn't even in India when his collection data was there. So it was, you know, it was this ridiculous theft. So Richard Meinertshagen is one of the people who had this egg, so it could be entirely suspect. But. So, so another quick question about your techniques. And uh, so tell us about the pigments that you use and the tools you use. Are you? Uh, I have a paintbrush fetish, but that's probably no surprise. <laughs> yeah, like I figured out if you put a, I always save my dead ones, you know, the bad brushes, because I started putting a capo on it. I saw people with a guitar, they put a capo on. So I built like paperclip capos that spread the brushes out like that. And then I can make bird bird prints really easily, like feather prints really easily. Um, so as I say, I, I, I have a sculptor's approach to making paintings. Mm -hmm. uh, they're more, you know, conceptual pieces to me than, yeah, there's a lot of execution and technique, but to me they're more conceptual because I'm building them for a very particular purpose and I want them to be used a certain way and, you know, I have an intent behind them. So, uh, uh, but the two... Oh, but I didn't talk about the pigments. Oh, but... oh yeah. No. Well, uh, you know, there's now a rating agency that rates pigments. Of course, they probably only do tests that last for about six minutes or six years, not very long. And also, you know, when it says safe, uh, non-toxic to humans on, a, on an art material, it means that less than half of the rats died. So be careful. Um, and I was going to ask you for what's a tiny detail with the two paintings that we have here? Is there one tiny detail that you can kind of only appreciate in person? Is there some little, uh, little detail you can point us towards as we have this brief moment well, to look at it so closely? I always have ants. And people like E.O. Wilson always finds them. Um, I might sometimes have as many as 15 species in there. Um, I mean, you can't speciate them at that level, you know, but, but they are in there as placeholders for themselves. Um, what I, what I want to do is make these plants and animals speak for themselves and, and tell their story without objectifying it or humanizing it too much. Just, it's, I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about them. Right. So. Let's see if we've got one more, maybe. Do we have uh, Mike out there from the back? Let's get someone from the back. Have you thought of uh, trying to imagine future life forms? <laughs> I've been leaving that to Alexis Rockman. <laughs> He's doing a good job with that. Um, no, but what I have entertained a lot, and I, bought a, I was given a microscope so that I might do it, is sometime address the smaller than eyesight world. And I'd like to do that, but there's a very big problem with that. There's, the only color is reflection. So how do I paint that? And also, we, it's easy for us to think, you know, 1x, 10x, 20x, 100x. That's not so easy to do in a painting that involves scale. So I haven't resolved it. You know, um, I think it was Bill, uh, who's, I was talking to a really smart person who's paid a lot of attention to natural things in California, really knows his birds. And, and I said, so what about the grasses? And he said, and he was probably 80 at the time, he said, I'm saving that for when I'm really old. <laughs> So I, I might be saving that until I'm really old. <laughs> There's so much to work on. I mean, there's just endless possibilities of things that would be, uh, you know, and I'm trying to capture our attitudes in these paintings. It's like I'm trying to make a time capsule of how we are thinking about our relationship to the natural world with them. So I have a lot of material. <laughs> So we're going to wrap up the stage portion, and hopefully everyone's going to stay around. You'll stick around and sure. tell some more, more stories, expand on some that you touched on here. Um, lastly, you've got some books that are here. Do you want to just I tell do. us briefly 
what, sure. uh, what those are. Yeah. Um, I have a few books uh, called Taxa that are the six paintings in the Taxa series, starting with Descendant. Uh, they were produced by my gallerist in New York, and if you would like to buy one, I'm donating the proceeds to Revive and Restore tonight. So. Thank you, and, th and those will be at the back, and of course you'll yes. be happy, happy to, to sign, sign them. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for being a great audience. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Thank you. Thanks, come back soon. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.